Hi, my name is Joe Talbot. I am the uh, co-writer, director, and one of the producers of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. There's our logo, uh, Patty Hearst. This cue here um, was something that changed, it feels like five or six times over, um, as we sort of got different credit approvals, uh, Emil had to keep changing the music to sort of fit these cards in the right way. And that's how we wound up with this beautiful piece, actually, that's one of my favorite melodies in the movie that he wrote. This girl uh, was actually a student of Jimmy's acting coach, Hannah Mikahelis, um, who when she wasn't preparing Jimmy for the role was an elementary school teacher in the East Bay. And she brought her to us and of course, you know, she has a sort of perfect charm to open the movie. Um, this was also kind of incredible. She hadn't acted in anything like this before, um, but this shot, was the first shot of the entire shoot, which was pretty difficult and asked a lot of our crew. I think we were all pretty amazed that they pulled that off at the beginning of the very first day of production. It got us all, I think, pretty pumped for the rest of the day. Willie Hen here who uh, plays the preacher is a San Francisco native and kind of a, a legend in his own right for people growing up in 90s, early 2000s. Um, he was a rapper and an activist. And this, I think, was his first time, though, ever playing a, a preacher. You know what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? Man, it's crazy what jail will do to a nigga. I don't care about water this scene is also um, because it was our first day, the first time that Jim and uh, Jonathan were together in a scene. Seems a bit more impromptu. 2019 out here. We've been yelling about this water since before they were born. And that's true. People have been shouting about what's happening in Hunter's Point, the residents of Hunter's Point, for years and years. I don't know how much the rest of the city is aware, but people in that neighborhood are deeply, you know, aware with how that has the highest cancer rates in the Bay Area. And there are parts of the community that have been literally built on toxic waste. After we finished shooting the film, it finally got coverage um, that it hadn't for a long time, and it was on the front page of the Chronicle, which was strange to see after um, you know having shot there just a month before. Jimmy and Jonathan practiced this skateboard, this two-man skateboard routine. And, you know, we were told by some people it was impossible. We actually called Tony Vitello, who uh, runs Thrasher, 
and had been really helpful to us throughout this process and kind of like to pick his brain about how we could, you know, pull this off. And we had a, a special board made that was just a little bit longer than a usual board and, and um, was made to be able to sort of like balance both of them. But it was still very difficult to do. And, you know, Jonathan's an athlete, had never skated before. Jimmy, of course, had, but in a weird way, I think that sort of like, probably one of the first things is they they did together as a team in rehearsals was figuring out how to how to share this this board together and not, you know, go tumbling off. We shot these slow motion shots of the passing people on a, a phantom camera, which I'm told was made to film whales. And so it's a very strange camera in the way it's built. And it was, we had to develop a very like specific approach for shooting these shots because we had to drive by it like 40 miles an hour. <laughs> You'd like gun it down the street and it can only record, I think, this camera because it's so, you know, it takes up so much space at that frame rate, like a thousand frames a second. You can only record up to 10 seconds. And some of those people are, are candid shots of us driving by. Some are actors that we staged. I should say they're native San Franciscans that we staged, not uh, experienced actors, but people we plucked from our friends and family and beyond. We really wanted to feel like as you got closer, as Jimmy got closer to the house, that um, he became, started to become the house. We spent uh, over a year trying to find the right house in San Francisco, which is hard because as the city has gotten uh, more and more expensive. Are you sure to go? You know, many people moving into these houses have gutted the insides and replaced all the sort of ornate detailing that make them special, or they've spent so much money restoring them that the last thing they want is for a you know crew of 40 people to come in and be, you know, breaking shit, understandably. This was a house that, there goes Jana Tache, our production designer actually, with her uh, her husband and their newborn baby, which she had <laughs> right before we shot. She's incredible. This is a house that I had passed on my way to school when I was a kid. My mom and I um, would pick out our favorite Victorians in the city the houses we dreamed of, of having, we couldn't afford a proper Victorian, so we would sort of pick out like our, our dream houses. And this was one that always stuck in my uh, in my head. Bring my grandpa's tools next time. Please do. The owner of this house, a man named Jim Tyler, who uh, kind of embodies the spirit of San Francisco, he's an older man. Who bought the house? People are killing me. Actually, bought it twice. You're not going in, though, Jim. I mean, he left it 
And he came back and had been turned to a halfway house and he never got over, you know, losing this house. So he, he was able to buy it back and he spent then the next 50 years of his life working on it and trying to return it to its sort of, uh, you know, its glory. And so he actually carved the witch hat that you see in the top of the house, shingle by shingle. And there's incredible footage, hopefully we'll be able to put on this DVD of him, of him flying through the air, I believe in like the late seventies on a crane. They let him, you know, basically uh, be the person to put it on. And so he's like Mary Poppins flying through the air, putting this, this witch hat uh, onto the top of the house that he had built. That organ on the left there is an organ that Jim has repaired. Among other things, he's like the preeminent organ repairman in the country, I think. Like he had like one of Neil Young's organs or something there. The time right before we were filming. And so there are all these beautiful organs throughout the house that when we found this place, you know, it felt like faded um, with Jimmy's grandfather having come here and, and, and been a pastor. And so we started to write, you know, those in, obviously, to the script. I'm almost done. Hold on. Please. Hold on. Oh, just get off my fucking birdie path. Get out of here, just, man. Those just, are $3. Oh. Fine. I'll finish it next time. God. Next time? I'll just get, get the heck off my just birdie Just water bath. the plants in the back or I will. Max and Michael, the two homeowners, are two great San Franciscans, local actors. We met and Max just felt like the mother of someone I, I might have known growing up. What if OG is right? I, you really got to stop eating the fish out there. I think it's fine. All fish have mercury. There's Mike Evans and uh, Zumbi, who are two friends of ours, who we've been talking to, you know, about this project for a long time. In the nursing outfits is Kalia, our lead producer, and her mother, actually, who's from Hunter's Point. Um, and uh, moved to Oakland in the 70s where she raised Kalia. But we all, I think, make some appearance in this film at some point. Antoine here in the orange jacket is someone that I've been making work with since high school. Uh, he was in the theater department of the high school that I went to, and he and I made music together. Jordan is also someone that I, I've known for a long time. So niggas taking showers together, dude? Probably was. I've known Javon since he was shorter than me, and he's about a foot taller than me now. And then, of course, Jamal Trulove was someone that we um, we met when we were casting kids for the rock fight scene coming up. Uh, he was a counselor at this after-school program, and um, he wandered in and auditioned on the spot and uh, blew us away. And after he auditioned, he told us this incredible story that he had been wrongfully convicted of murder and spent six and a half years in prison, not thinking he would ever get out. And uh, basically fought, 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 fought. And, uh, you know, <laughs> was, uh, was released. And when we casted him, um, he was suing the SFPD and 
a couple days before we started shooting, he won a $10 million settlement. So he became overnight um, this like folk hero in San Francisco and everywhere he goes when I'm with him in San Francisco now people shout out 10 milli, 10 milli. <laughs> Danny Glover, of course. Man, Danny is like the living embodiment of what is great about San Francisco. He lived in Hunter's Point and Fillmore in the Haight-Ashbury and was an activist, you know, I think even longer than he's been an actor. Um, and so everyone that grows up in San Francisco, me, Jimmy, everyone else in this movie, you know, you all grow up on stories of Danny Glover. Everybody has a Danny Glover story because one of the remarkable things about Danny is he never left San Francisco. He's lived there, continued to live there his whole life and been very involved in the city, you know, that, that raised him. And that's part of why I think people there, like us, are so proud of him and look up to him. Now this room, man, I mean, it's one of the many places you just get to kind of marvel at, at the brilliance of Jonna Tachette, our production designer. It was just a, an empty room. And actually this apartment inside was somewhere where my good friend Theo Ellington, who ran for supervisor actually this last year as we were filming this movie, Supervisor from Hunter's Point, he and I made movies together in high school. He's gone in, on, into politics as I've gone, you know, kept in film, but this is his house that he lived in. So I think it must have been a trip for him to watch this movie, see it repurposed this way. But by the time we were shooting there, it was empty, and Jonna came in and built this little world, you know, that I think is um, gives gives us a sense of Mont and what's important to him, you know, him drawing on the wall. That's actually Jonathan's actual mother. In real life, he's drawing there on the wall. And so it became, you know, in a lot of ways, obviously this pulls a lot from Jimmy's life. Um, those are all Jimmy as a kid, those pictures there. But for everyone, I think, you know, they kind of brought their own very personal experiences to this movie, including these guys all native San Franciscans. This kid here throws a rock is Gunna, Gunna with the eye patch. That's his, his son. And you see too, on the right and the left, um, Gunna's other kids as well. So it really did feel like a family production in a lot of ways. I don't know if I'm embarrassing Adam to say this. People have asked me how we got the light in this shot. And uh, this is actually, this close-up of Jonathan with Mott is uh, on land. And we're sort of just slightly rocking this boat. Um, Adam did these incredible things with light in this movie in the daytime exteriors, sort of embracing the harshness of afternoon light that I think usually you try to run from because it can be so garish. Um, but with reflectors and, and some other techniques, he was able to sort of embrace it and, and use it to our advantage. I always love seeing Mott here in this giant's hat. I think for natives, there's little 
things like that that kind of, for whatever reason, feel special to you. All right. Small guy. This is one of the few things, I think, from like the very first script that never left. It was always supposed to be that Mont worked in a Chinese grocery store, a fish market. And so as sort of many parts of the film changed over time, this was one thing that somehow remained. This is a, this is one of my favorite shots. Just, I have a very personal connection to it. I live close to here and I walk home at this time of night often and it kind of always puts me in a very particular mood. People are coming home after a long day at work and um, I love just seeing those little houses stacked on each other and Bernal in the background. Jimmy and I both lived at my parents' house in order to make this movie, which I think speaks to the sort of current state of San Francisco. Um, but this is, you know, that route is one that we both walked often on our ways home. In the script, there were actually more scenes initially at this retirement home. Um, you know, part of the thinking was that Jimmy worked here in part because it was the closest he could get to being inside, you know, an old Victorian before, of course, he breaks into his old house. You only see part of what made this room so special, but in the additional scenes we had, you see that this, this room is like incredibly ornate. It was a shame to lose those. You're a nice man. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're a nice woman. You old marshmallow, cream puff ass, candy oh, ham ass, <laughs> cream puff <laughs> ass. Nigga, oh, shut up, bitch, bro. Oh, this shit, bitch. Oh, bitch, oh, bitch, bro. Oh, oh, dread, looking like a fucking Rastafari I love how Adam lit this at night. To me, it, it felt like old Hollywood. And that was something he and I talked about a lot, you know, with this film and, and especially with Mont in certain scenes having a connection to theater and, and, and films of the past. You see there Baldwin and, and uh, Richard Wright and Canada Lee, Barbara Stanwyck. Stop, nigga. These were people that, that Jonathan either picked out or I did that, you know, he felt like Mott would have a, an appreciation for. Fritzi Edelman was a hero here. We were supposed to filmed this on the roof of a building and the day of the owner of the building said he didn't want us up there so Fritzy rang doorbells every doorbell of this apartment complex across the street and one person finally answered and let us into her window just as the sun was setting and so we shot that at the end of that day but that's the kind of production it was in some ways we just barely got by Jim 
Isn't that the car you used to live in? This is based on a true thing um, in Jimmy's life. There was a guy that drove off with the car that he and his dad were living in and sort of never seemed to acknowledge that he had done that. And so Jimmy and I thought it would be pushed to sort of like <laughs> a pretty funny place if you imagine that that guy is, is uh, Mike Epps. Mike has his own sort of funny connection to San Francisco being in comedy for so long. He, he's been coming to San Francisco for a long time. So we were both surprised. He knew Hunter's Point so well. He knows San Quinn, who's like a big local rapper in San Francisco and is the guy in the candy house arguing with the candy lady. It was actually pretty cool how well he knew San Francisco. Oh man, I get PTSD watching this shot because this scene we almost never got. You know, our, our schedule for this movie was pretty crazy. And so through a scheduling error, um, we ended up having to shoot this on the way to lunch. So this is these guys driving to lunch. <laughs> and people in the streets are like tripping out because you don't see, you know, process trailers in San Francisco. And on top of that, it's Mike Epps. So people are shouting out to Mike every time we get a good take. You know, the light was very particular that time of day. So cutting it was a real feat for David Marks, my editor, and, and Harry Yoon, who helped us on this scene. It was wonderful. That's what, that's what people have kids for. So they Basically, to shoot the whole thing driving to lunch. <laughs> so hats off to Mike and, and Jimmy and Jonathan for, you know, being able to do that. This uh, construction worker has appeared in, in uh, our past work as well, doing a similar thing. His name is uh, Gary Lane. And we, we like Gary Lane to bait. We do the same thing with Gary Lane every time. We just kind of push into him and let him stare down the barrel. He's got such a great face. But it never was yours. <laughs> More friends and family. My cousin's in here as one of the construction workers. This is just a couple of houses down from the Painted Ladies in San Francisco. But that was something that always stuck with me that Mike said when we were talking about his character first, Bobby, he said, you know, Bobby has beaten San Francisco. Everyone in San Francisco is chasing something, wanting something, you know, including Jimmy. He wants this house so badly. And Mike felt that Bobby had won, as he put it, at San Francisco because he didn't want shit. He didn't want anything. This mover on the left, played by Dennis Chavez, someone I met on Mission Street uh, late one night. He's a cab driver. And he actually dresses in these incredible suits. He had a burgundy suit when I met him and that like beautiful long hair. Um, and so we're excited to get Dennis in this because he's, you know, just one of those like great San Franciscans that you, you used to see around more than you do these days. John had built behind Jimmy this whole um, 
concrete facade for the front of the house because the one sort of inglorious thing about this house was that it had this very unattractive two-car garage. And so she built that in the vines and um, was able to blend it in, I think, pretty naturally. These projects here, Double Rock, are way out at the sort of edge of Hunter's Point, and they were tearing them down as we were shooting. And for people that grow up in San Francisco, they're sort of, they're very well known. Um, and so we were able to sneak in here just before they tore them down. There's San Quinn, who's um, a legend in San Francisco. And Dakisha Chapel, who plays a candy lady, had actually been a candy lady in Army Street um, projects where, where Jimmy lived for a period and down the street from where I grew up. That's how Jimmy met, uh, we met in that neighborhood. But uh, Dakisha had actually been a candy lady there and I met her when she was a, uh, she was working in the sweet section and uh, cake section of Whole Foods. So she has, I think, uh, must have an affinity for sweets. Finn, this is sort of funny. I didn't realize this when we casted him, but <laughs> I saw Beale Street later after we had finished uh, making the movie. We were so deep in it, I wasn't watching any other movies. And I started cracking up because in that film, he's sitting across from two African-American people <laughs> at a table uh, who are they're in sort of a dire situation. So poor Finn is like always the, the white guy in these situations, I guess. But he was great, you know, he came on. This was uh, towards the end of the film. And, you know, he felt like those guys that, that you know, um, went to St. Ignatius in San Francisco. We really wanted to get neon in this scene and that green neon of, of uh, New Mission Theater, you know, the theater we used to break into in high school sneak around it's beautiful we used to go on the roof you know it was like sort of a thing for kids that grew up in the mission um and then you know thankfully unlike many other theaters in san francisco they get turned into gyms or walgreens this one was taken over by alamo and they reopened it and brought that gorgeous green neon back to life At this point in the movie, I don't know how many people actually notice this, but Jimmy's only really wears one outfit. I mean, he changes to see his dad, and he changes once more to go to the bank to get a loan. But this shirt was a shirt that, um, oh man, it was a shirt that nearly broke the production's back. I had found a shirt like this five years ago when we first started developing the film, and and. Um, but by the time we were going to shoot, you know, it was an actual vintage shirt. We needed multiples because it's crazy to, you know, shoot with just one shirt if something happens to the shirt. But uh, all the shirts that we were finding just didn't feel quite right. They were new. They felt like, you know, RVCA or some shit like that. And it just gave his character a different feeling, especially since we're looking at it the entire time. 
So Fritzi Edelman, one of our collaborators, looked far and wide and found this material just days before we were about to shoot, got it out here, and uh, to Amanda Ramirez, our incredible costume designer. And uh, Amanda had the shirt made just in the nick of time. You know, we talked a lot about how to show Jimmy for the first time in the house. This is his first time in there, you know, um, since he was a kid and what that would feel like and, and how to communicate that. And we landed on this idea of, of seeing just the empty rooms of the house and hearing him off screen building and building and building um, so that you can sort of appreciate the majesty of this house. And then at the height of that, we finally see him, you know, um, and see just how much it means to him painted on his face, you know. This is uh, Joe Biafra as our as our resident Segway tour guide. Joe's, you know, a great San Franciscan, <laughs> and uh, I think really relished uh, the opportunity to play, you know, a bad guy. Um, he came with like twenty different costume possibilities <laughs> for this. All these different like ridiculous hats. But that's his wardrobe, that shirt. And I think this was his first time ever on a Segway. This wasn't built by an architect. My grandfather built this. He came here in World War II. He initially had a much longer monologue about sort of uh, lesser known San Francisco history because Joe is such a student of San Francisco history beyond having participated in it. You know, he studied it as well, um, which is part of what makes him, I think, a great San Franciscan and different from a lot of people who are arriving now. He, like, really loves on the history that kind of came before him in the city. Um, we had to cut it down just because it was, it was, it ran long for the movie. But for people that know San Francisco, it's sort of a shame to lose because he really, he knows the history well. You get a snippet of it here when he's writing off talking about Patty Hearst. <laughs> Patty Hearst willfully hid herself in before trotting down Brett. to the Hibernia Bank. So this was something that Mott ad-libbed with Jimmy, this whole piece here. Wave. Wave to the general. Hey, general. Yeah, it looks like a circle. We talked about Jimmy feeling like a king or some sort of royalty. Now he's restored, you know, back to the throne that was lost. And John just ran with that. piece of temp here that I really loved and you know I was dangerously close to just licensing this piece and and making it the thematic music for for Jimmy in the house um thank god though Emil you know in his brilliance pulled me away from it because I was so as directors get you know sometimes locked into that piece um, I'd lived with it and I loved it and loved the feeling it gave me, but Emil wrote something that sort of was able to conjure even more with the oboes and the bassoons and 
Camilla's beautiful operatic voice and Ralph Cato's low opera singer there. He came up with something that felt, well, now it's hard to imagine the movie sounding differently, I mean, actually. I mean, that's Dickens. This was one of the homeowner, Jim Tyler's organs um, that he was really proud of. Those pipes aren't actually operating. They're there aesthetically. But of course, they look incredible. But that is the real sound of that organ. It's funny, there's this time of day when the, the light naturally came through that stained glass, and you only got it for like 20 minutes or something, so we had to move very quickly here. But you know, this house just naturally has so much beauty within it. It was so fun for us to think about the different ways to show it. Never San Francisco natives and people that know the city well, they always laugh at this because this is Forest Hill Station, which is, you know, Muni Station. It's not BART, and then they're on BART here. But we just love the way that Forest Hill looks. It feels like it's made for a film. Man, and then, you know, Adam at, the, at his peak glory here with these guys wandering through the flowers. We actually scoured this location. It's out in Crockett, which is kind of an incredible place about 45 minutes outside of San Francisco. I think Paul Thomas Anderson shot parts of the master there that was supposed to sh serve as like uh, New England, I think, these scenes here, but it has that feeling. It's like all built around the old CNH uh, sugar factory, this town on a hill. But when we scouted this house, those uh, flowers weren't there <laughs> or they hadn't bloomed yet, I guess. And so it was such a, you know, like we got back there and we were really lucky. I love this couple. They feel like a couple that we would have known growing up um, in San Francisco, very particular to the Bay. Tashina, of course, is like the best. So we started thinking when we casted Tashina, like who would be a really fun boyfriend for her to have. And Tony, <laughs> Uh, Vitello from Thrasher helped connect us to Day One Song, <laughs> who for some people on the film, like my co-producer, Luis Alfonso de la Parra, he'd like had a Day One poster, you know, on his wall. Um, I think there were some people on the crew that were more starstruck by Day One than anyone else. And he was so great, you know, he was like, Tashina was just like flirting with him outrageously. <laughs> I think even when the cameras weren't rolling and he was like so bashful and sweet and um, it was just really great to, to see them kind of be together. Your daddy didn't send you here, right? No. You sure? You know, it's nice when we, Wanda was a creation of, out of a lot of our imagination, sort of collectively this character, Sidney Lowe, one of our producers, and, and me and, and Rob and Jimmy and all sort of like developed her, you know, um, together. And then when Tashina came on, it was like, you know, she brought her to a whole other level. 
of just realism and relatability. And I think this scene was really important shooting this because she really did make Jimmy feel so comfortable. It's easy when you, you know, especially Jimmy, this being his first time around, when you're with an actress like that, someone that you've grown up watching, to be a little starstruck. But she did such a great job of just putting everybody at ease. I think you really, you see it there, you know, between them and that interaction. They feel familiar. <laughs> he really got all of this. Yep. Kent. Got as much as I could. Our sound designer had this uh, idea for this, which I loved, which he said he wanted to feel like the sort of uh, bottom of a ship, you know, like this in this treasure. Um, and so he created this very subtle, um, but kind of remarkable feeling in the sound design in this scene that you're in this sort of like cozy space. When you grew up in San Francisco, you know, you take these day trips and we've all, you know, been driving back to San Francisco down the Northern California highways at this golden hour. And I think it's a very particular feeling that, you know, the rolling green hills on like each side of you and these glimpses of the bay off in the distance, you know. So we really wanted to capture that. And just a feeling of, man, these two guys got like their treasure and they're heading home. Finally returning to its rightful place. Thank you. There's a kind of stable of older Bay Area actors who've made, you know, the Bay their home. Um, some of them do a lot of theater there. Warren Keith is one of those guys who's like incredible. He's in a few of the Coen Brothers films. He's in Lebowski. Uh, he's a voice in Fargo. So for me, it was like an honor to work with him. He's really, really funny. Even funnier, I think, than, than we were able to capture here. He ad-libs this line at the end. I want you to know, I'm gonna be the best damn neighbor you ever had. Well, uh, all right, Jimmy. Uh, thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, well, you have to pardon me. We've got lots to do, but... Oh, of course. Oh, nice yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. There was a whole... <laughs> the part of the script is the dog was supposed to be constipated and, and mid-poop as all this was happening, but... Of course, that went out the window pretty quickly. <laughs> drink my coffee and scratch my ass while I read the paper. I think that line was something Jimmy had said, you know, when we asked him, like, what it, I never had what would read it being a homeowner feel like? And he said, you know, drinking your coffee and scratching your ass while you read the paper. We could throw parties. It's this beautiful house, obviously, but I think sometimes it's those, like, simple place. pleasures that can out. mean the most to us. <laughs> ah! <laughs> My name is Jimmy. Oh, 
the neighbors. We also talked about like what owning a home felt like and some of it's just bad. It's shouting, being able to shout. It's yours, you know, in, in Mont's house, they, they have to be quiet and respectful of his grandfather. And so part of it, we just wanted to kind of capture the, that feeling of like being able to do whatever you want. When we were growing up, Jimmy would do this, you know, hitching rides on the back of trucks. Um, and so this is also one of the last carryovers from the very first draft of the script. This shot was one that we almost lost, um, and a bunch of people on set that day fought like crazy to make sure we got it. We had to close down all these intersections, you know, again, on, on indie means. Um, you know, heading into rush hour traffic. And Niall Gibbs, Jimmy's double for this very, very difficult shot, was kind of remarkable in, in pulling that off. Um, the first couple times he fell, and we were pretty worried, but he got back up, and that take is the final take we got. I cut the sequence to Joni Mitchell. It's one of the things I like to do. I like to edit to music when I can, which I think can be dangerous sometimes because, you know, the producers who are smarter than me were like, well, we don't have the rights to Joni. So if you cut this whole thing specifically to her music and you don't get it, you might be left high and dry. You know, we were lucky in the end that we got the rights, that she gave us the rights to the song because I, it's hard to imagine it without it. You know, I built this whole sequence in the edit around around her music, around that choral version in the last piece and, and this. I first heard this song when Mac Dre sampled it for a song called Bonus Track. He sampled the lyrics of acid, booze, and grass needles, guns and ass, and kind of looped it. And that was like a gateway drug into the original song, which I think is like a lot of kids experience growing up in the Bay. It's like. A lot of rappers are sampling old San Francisco music. San Quinn sampled the Scott McKenzie song that we sort of then remade for this movie. But that was the first time I heard that and brought me back um, into that song. We wanted to use a Mac Dre version actually for this, but unfortunately we weren't able to clear the rights. And for what you supposed to be my fault? Hit that nigga, bruh. That's sort of, I think, a big part of growing up in the Bay is you are exposed to all these different kinds of music. Tuan, one of the guys in the scene, you know, said that he sort of discovered Joni Mitchell as well through that, that sample. And I think everyone in San Francisco, you know, a lot of people grow up in such close proximity to each other, old hippies, you know, that came in the 60s and never left. And people in Hunter's Point that you do sometimes, it does give way to this these kind of beautiful crossover moments. And so as uh, unexpected, you know, in some ways, I think, as it is to put Joni Mitchell over that sequence, it also feels very much from the fabric of, of San Francisco. Jonathan has a deep, 
deep background in theater. He's constantly quoting his favorite playwrights. And so this scene is, is really, a lot of it is his own invention. In the script, you know, Mott is supposed to go across the street and interrupt them, kind of spare Kofi of what's happening. But the lines and, and the way that, that John did it, um, he's, he's riffing. Keep building it. That's Jordan riffing too. Jordan has so many ad libs in the movie that are just his own. That shot is our Invisible Man shot, we called it. And this is, of course, the first time we see Jimmy in a different outfit uh, in the whole film. Tim Blevins is an opera singer who you see singing downtown in San Francisco. I went to Juilliard. And I think, you know, his story is emblematic of a lot of people in San Francisco, you know, which used to be a place where I think the artist class, you know, the musicians were celebrated. When you think back to the 60s, you know, Janis Joplin and, and Grace Slick and Moby Grape, and now they're singing on the streets. Even when they have voices as beautiful as, as Tim's. And this location was one, you know, we scouted locations long, long before I think, you know, most films tend to because we knew they were going to be such an important part of capturing San Francisco and the side of San Francisco that we wanted to show um, that doesn't often get, you know, that cinematic treatment. And so we found that wall with that big stay sign, which was a, a hotel in the Tenderloin. And it, it just felt perfect to imagine James Sr., you know, sitting up in this tower of isolation, staring at the world below and then spitting sunflower seeds at them. When Rob Morgan was on set, man, you just kind of lean in. Um, he's so captivating. It was, you know, amazing to Jimmy and I, for someone that hadn't been to San Francisco very much, you know, Rob hadn't spent much time there, how well he folded in. Um, I think in the days before we shot this, he just walked around the Tenderloin, which as he always says is not tender. And um, I think he absorbed a lot in that little time he spent there, which just speaks to him. This room is actually, <laughs> This is in the same uh, building, is in the same floor of, of uh, Montgomery's house, actually, which was out in Hunter's Point. Jana turned this room into the inside of an SRO. I think we were all worried it, it wouldn't work, but she did such a great job transforming that space. The owners left it. Gonna pay taxes on it. Hey, you put gas and electric in your and Jimmy is, you know, wearing a different outfit to see his dad. Um, and I think it's interesting for some people, I don't know that they notice it, but others I think are deeply aware. And, you know, that was, I think something that was true for Jimmy in, in certain parts of his life is, is having to switch up the way he looked in, in different situations. You know, that was something that we talked about growing up. And I think for people that have gone through that or something similar, 
they catch that pretty quickly. It's the house in Filma. Rob Morgan's turn here, even after all these times, having watched wow. it and edited it, always still gets me. Arrow House. Fuck you mean, our old house? Have you seen the house? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'll be over there all the time. Didn't you know that's not your old house and that's not your black-ass neighborhood? Look, disrespectful lying ass. You know, the way when I showed my dad this scene, his feeling was... You know, that, that Rob's character as a father, as James Sr., is just so worried for his son. That's where his anger comes out of that. And, you know, I think a, a sadness at having lost the house. But it's interesting to hear from a dad's perspective, you know, where he felt that that, that anger might come from. And that he's just worried. Worried and... and uh, and then it brings up things that are difficult for him to revisit. This was something that was always in the script, was wanting to juxtapose sort of a harsh and intense scene like that with the strangeness of San Francisco. Uh, and David Olsner was very brave because this is on a fairly busy intersection in the Castro and Castro and Market. Hey, you've been here long? Hell long, bro. I think someone that was driving by said, Look, it's Neil Young's dick. Well, that's nice. I grew up, you know, loving Jefferson Airplane and Somebody to Love was like an anthem, you know, of sorts. So we wanted to think about it and, you know, the sort of classic San Francisco cable car both being perverted on wheels and with uh, a new beat behind them. I think Jimmy always said of this scene, you know, it's like he connects more with this naked band than he does with the people that are his age on the bus because they're both San Franciscans. Like California Street, you know, the, the street, Jimmy's character bombs a few scenes back. Buena Vista is another one that's sort of famous. There's a lot of old skate videos of people like flying down Buena Vista. Fuck! You okay? This was something that 
when we first discovered Jim Tyler's house, you know, it was like one, if we needed any more reason to fall in love with it, yeah. finding what he called a Pope's hole, which was this, this secret room that he had built behind this bookcase. It was those sort of details, you know, from kind of one man's magical brain and hands that made this place feel so special. And that's, I think, a part of what makes Victorians feel special to the people that love them is that no one is the same, you know? Jim was really excited to show us this. And so we ended up writing it in to the script. And that was part of a, a process that was, you know, something we did kind of commonly. We'd be out scouting. We'd find a place that we loved or, or you know, someone on the street who just felt really interesting and we'd end up writing them in. And, so we ended up building this scene around this, you know, and I think Mott obviously being a, a builder and a dreamer himself, you know, um, discovering this room was fun to think about. Even as, it, you know, it comes as his friend, I think, is, is hurting. What the fuck? I invited somebody. This is my, this is my favorite moment in the film. This scene coming up, seeing these three guys in this space together. They're all so different, but they're all such San Franciscans. And I think we don't see, you know, even those of us that grew up in San Francisco, there are a lot of people that don't see characters like Kofi in a Victorian and frankly, Jimmy, you know? Kalia, my lead producer, who's from the Bay, she's from uh, Oakland originally, she said it felt like a political act when we just saw Jimmy in this house for the first time, you know? And I think what's tragic about that is there were, you know, particularly in the Fillmore, many African-Americans living in Victorians. And, and some have still managed through all the difficulties of, of trying to exist in San Francisco to, to keep them, you know, but many, many weren't able to. Um, and so I think Victorians became synonymous with upper middle class white people. This place is cool. Yeah. Jimmy's been doing a lot to fix it up. How do I get this? It's Jimmy's. His grandpa built it. He was the first black man in San Francisco. That's what they call him anyways. Oh, shit. This that house? Hmm. I beyond the kind of significance, the beyond the significance of the, the history, um, it also just felt like so fun to get to see these three men who are all so different be in this space together. See Kofi start to come out of his shell I loved even um, Amanda's subtle choice to have his his hoodie match the um, the stained glass that's behind Kofi. As we start to see that he and Jimmy actually have this shared past um, that Mont doesn't know about, and that was a sort of that was something that we talked about when we were developing the script. Was Jimmy has parts I think of his past that he hasn't shared with Mont um, as close as they are. And part of the film is about Mont discovering Jimmy, you know, all sides of Jimmy. 
Even though he knows him, I think, better than most people, maybe better than anybody. No, these white people did. I think he's still sort of learning about his friend who's had this varied life and, and lived all over the, the city before they, they met as kids, which is like we, we imagine that they met when they were, they were kids. Or teens, rather. And I think that out of that kind of process of learning more and more about his friend, Mont turns his creative interests, which are usually pointed out at the neighborhood that he loves, um, to his friend. And I think tries to turn those discoveries into the, the play, of course. This scene for people from the Bay, we often hear is like one of their favorites because it is just like getting to see an interaction that I think for a lot of people that grew up there feels really familiar. Jimmy and Jamal just, I think, Jimmy and Jamal did such a great job, I think, of just like riffing and and enjoying each other's company. This sauna was another incredible thing that was in the house. Jim built this sauna, Jim Tyler, the homeowner, um, in the attic. It's down the hall, it's the room with the little cloth with the tub. All right, this is cool as shit, big ass house. Man, I wish I had You see on Jamal's chest his tattoo that says life after life, which is a reference to him having life in prison and getting out when it was, you know, his proven that he was innocent the entire time. Kind of forget, and then the 10, of course, on his stomach for 10 milli, which was the settlement he got, 10 million. You forget with Jamal in a way after a while, even though his story is so incredible, all that he's been through because he is such a good actor. He's so natural and charming. Um, you forget that he's had this, been through this awful experience. Um, and part of that too is I think with Jamal, he is, you know, you trying have, to turn what he says, you know, is a tragedy into a triumph. That's okay, Jim. Nah, seriously, man. I've been in your space forever. This place is yours, too. Any room? I think when we walked around the house with Jonathan for the first time, and we were saying, you know, what room would you pick? This was the room with that gorgeous painting on the ceiling. And I think he knew immediately. <laughs> Are you sure you want the dining room? Yeah. That's perfect. This song is a Sweetwater's cover of Motherless Child which cuts out just before the first lyric begins. And of course feels very much like San Francisco at a particular time.
complicated situation. No, the power's been on, I just need the bill in my name. Uh-huh. Danny had this kindness to him on set that I wasn't expecting. Again, you know, he's such a such an important figure in San Francisco history. You know, you don't necessarily assume he'll be so humble and and um, compassionate, but he was, you know. He already paid half, Grandpa. Some of that, I think, is comes through in this character, but he was really encouraging to me and Jimmy because, you know, he knew this was our first film. And he would say to us, you know, I did this in part because I knew I met two guys and you and Jimmy that love San Francisco as much as I do. This scene is, you know, hard when it reminds me of my parents in some ways, that feeling when you're, you're going off and you love them, but, you know, you have to do something without them now. You know, that's that's what I think we we the best at when we break. And I think Jonathan and, and Danny really captured that feeling. Right now. Here it felt very very personal. I'd love to talk about it soon. Especially uh, my parents are artists, they're writers and so mm-hmm. like Danny's character, they've always been, you know, very encouraging towards us and take a lot of pride in, in what we do. So I think it's sometimes that that independence and that growth, you know, can also, I'm sure, be a little sad because it's you're, you're leaving the, uh, the nest. All of Jordan's roasts here are Jordan's. <laughs> I think I just told Jordan, just roast Jimmy. So these are all his inventions. Nigga, shut up, bro. One shirt, have an ass. Jimmy, wear the same shirt every motherfucking day. You look like a fiend. Jimmy, come on. Hey, hey, just like your daddy. I remember. I think we've all had that friend who, you know, when we're in a private space and they feel comfortable, is gets more in touch with a, a vulnerable side of themselves but who, when they're back around, you know, a larger group of guys, returns to a sort of toxic place, you know? And I think this scene was was pulling from that feeling. You're not better than us, Jimmy! You're not better than us! Hey, what is that, slight skirt? You gonna beautify the house with? I know who you is, Jimmy! I think there's a lot of pressures, obviously, on Kofi to be a certain way. And, you know, he caves to them here. But I think, as Jimmy says later on, people aren't one thing. And that's an important part of this movie. And another part I think that was important is that the ways that Jimmy and Mott are different in dealing with this. You know, I think Jimmy is the recipient of, of Kofi's hurtful, he just talks shit. Remarks, and so I think he takes it personally, you know, understandably. But Mott sees the world with a, a unique level, I think, of empathy, which, again, for me being a, so San Francisco-centric is, is something I do think of as being 
you know, a value or an ideal in San Francisco that people are, are raised on. Treating people that way with empathy, even when they've maybe done something hurtful or harmful. And I think Jonathan really understood that, you know, that line. I shouldn't get to appreciate them just because they're mean to me. Is something that he <laughs> he he talked about a lot. That's my friend Shawnee's mom, who I went to high school with, and it just so happened that she lived in the house right across the way. She stayed up till four in the morning to get that shot because we were running behind schedule. That's just another moment where, you know, it feels like it's a movie by friends and family, even though it was bigger than anything, you know, we'd done in, in scope and scale. And it still somehow felt that way because there's so many people from different parts of our lives that are involved. These are real gunshots. We were filming at the edge of Hunter's Point. And Mike fucking Epps, that is his actual reaction. I kept rolling. <laughs> and because Mike was just so genuine in his reaction. I think part of what makes Jimmy's love for the house so, you know, deep is that he takes pleasure in, in even the kind of everyday chores. You know, I think people that when you move into your first apartment or you get a place that you feel like you have ownership of for the first time can relate to that feeling of, of enjoying just like cleaning your room, for instance, that feeling like a, a special thing because it's yours. It's interesting, I've seen this character of Mary produce, you know, very different reactions. I think for some people they really feel for her because they see her as another San Franciscan who just can't afford to be there and who lost a place that she loved. And I think other people see her as part of the problem, as someone that hasn't done enough to sort of understand, you know, who Jimmy is as this kid that returns to this house. And I think it's interesting, you know, I, I think in some ways both are true. I don't know yet. Just trying to... I think, you know, for me, she's not someone that's part of new San Francisco. I guess we'll just come back tomorrow then. I imagine she's someone that's lived there for a long time. That's nice. <laughs> you know, and, and probably purchased this property when it was much cheaper, but she also isn't someone that got deeply involved in the neighborhood, perhaps, and, and you know, close with her neighbors who were there when Jimmy was there when he was a kid, either. There's another great San Franciscan, to Jenny Candyman Davis. To Jenny is a staple in San Francisco. We'll come back and she'll be painting the window seal. Did Jenny start riffing about bubblegum on the bus without any direction? Yes, I will be there. 
I think that shows he's been riding Muni for a long time. I'll be there 15 minutes early. Yes, yes, I told. This is Jimmy's actual mom. And this is based on something that actually happened between Jimmy and Lachey. Wow, Good to see you. I think this movie, you know, is obviously, it's very brave for Jimmy to do this, to explore these parts of his past, you know, in a, in a film. And in a scene like this, it's, it's just as brave for Lachey to go back to this event. Adam and I talked a lot about how to shoot this scene and this style that we landed on with this shot reverse shot and then both centered in the screen with the kind of background overexposed and worrying past felt really important because when you go back and forth between their faces like this, you see just how similar they look. You know, he's really his mother's son in a lot of ways, Jimmy, you know, in their nose and even just some of the expressions they make. And yet there is this distance between them as well from having not seen each other for a long time. But what's remarkable about both Jimmy and Lachey in this scene is because we shot it this way, they're not actually looking at each other. There's a big camera separating them. And so they were still able to, to act without having a face to react to. I think that probably adds to this sort of feeling of distance, but it also made it harder for them. And so it's kind of remarkable they were still able to perform, particularly Lachey, having never done anything like this. Jimmy talked to his mom about this scene, you know, quite a bit before we shot it. And that was an important part of the process was him just talking to her and, you know, explaining the feelings for him that it came from and the importance of including it. And it was really, you know, brave of her to come and do that. And I think for her, she wanted to support her son. What the fuck happened? Got shot. They shot him. Who, who shot him? Kofi's character and Ooh. this scene of his passing For what? are pulling from things that happened to different friends of ours in San Francisco. For what? There's one friend in particular who I think sick, felt man. like he had to be hard and he got killed and that sort of feeling always stuck with me he died when we were like 13 so thinking of him sort of being frozen in time as the city has changed since you know it's like we still had like flip phones you know 
and he was wearing like diamond coats. It was like everything sort of is frozen in time. I think that was something Jimmy and I talked a lot about. And then, of course, the different reactions that people have to death. Jordan's never acted in a film before. But he really understood when he and I talked about this scene. The anger and the fear and the sadness and I think even some guilt. That poor boy and his friends. I'm sorry, Jimmy. This scene in the script and how we shot it ended actually in a really beautiful hug where Jimmy and Jonathan embraced Danny. And it remained in the edit for a long time because it was such a, such a moving moment to see them all sort of embrace. And they sort of embrace him because they know grandpa's is worried for them and their safety and they go over to hug him and sort of reassure him, tell him everything's going to be okay. But it removed the tension as well. It was an interesting education for me, never having edited a feature and like, why sometimes you do have to lose those, those moments. Some of them are maybe the most beautiful moments in the film, but it didn't flow as well into this scene where I think there is still a tension even between Jimmy and Mott and the different ways they're dealing with death, you know? Mott is, had been writing a play about Kofi and I think had his own sort of ideas about who Kofi was and what Kofi meant to the neighborhood. And of course, Jimmy having this connection to him from when they were kids, but also troubled by the last interaction that he had with him. I think is processing his passing and the surprise of that really differently. I think that was something that we wanted to sort of capture here was, we don't see a lot of moments where Jimmy and Mott are dealing with things in, in really different ways, but this was a, a crucial one for what's to come. Adam stole these shots of the city as we were waiting to film um, the opening sequence, actually, where Jimmy and Mont crest the hill and then descend into the city. No, they won't clean it up. They ended up leading to, you know, one of my favorite sequences, this one. We was made to be put through hell. Just the sort of feeling of the city before it wakes and Will being one of the first people up and, and preparing that speech that he gives every day to an audience of no one. Fuck! Oh, God. Fuck! How did she toss all of our shit? Here you can really see Jonna's work and that, that facade that she built in the front of the house. I don't think it was her. 
on a little movie like ours, that was a big feat, her being able to do that. Fucking traitor. That line of Clayton being a traitor was an important one. You know, I think that you do see occasionally these people that are from San Francisco that are willing to uh, throw their, their fellow native brethren under the bus to uh, make a buck in this, you know, city that was supposed to feel, I think, felt like when we were kids, a place where we all banded together, but um, that now feels much more capitalistic than it than it ever has, at least in my lifetime. Sorry, um, how can I help you today? Uh, I want to buy a house. A house? That's you know, exciting. so many beautiful buildings in San Francisco get taken over no. by shitty companies. No. No. <laughs> uh, and so we wanted to take those WPA murals which are a great part of San Francisco's history and some of the last, you know, beautiful art that you still see around San Francisco and put them in a bank that felt fitting. And so we used the Beach Chalet, which San Franciscans, you know, people from there know as being way out by, by the water and turn it into a bank for this scene. Also because this mural in particular is sort of a valentine to the working class of San Francisco's past. And so thinking of Jimmy, you know, in that opening shot, his head almost like a face in the mural, almost like he's now sort of a memory and nearly non-existent in San Francisco. I'm black, I'm not rich. I came here knowing all that. But let's be real. You also got a quota to meet. I was really proud of Jimmy in this scene. Sir, but you're trying to make your money. You know, Jimmy's only ever acted in my movies that we made up until this point. <laughs> and none of them on this scale, none of them this demanding. This is the only house I'll ever want. And we, you know, asked a lot of him here. This is one continuous take. And I think when someone starts to fall off in one take, you feel it. You know, it really asks a lot of the actor. I will pay back every single cent. But he, he killed it. Sorry, sir. I will pay back every single cent. Okay, okay, you win. <laughs> okay, yep, it's yours. You charming bastard. Okay, <laughs> talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Jonathan went to Yale, and I believe Finn went to Juilliard. I'm a high school dropout, so I don't really know much about like colleges and you know which programs are competitive with each other. But I believe Jonathan said, you know, Yale and Juilliard are two that that are, and so you know he always referred to this as the showdown. Which I don't think is true. Well, it isn't. It isn't true. It also claims to have all the original fixtures, floors, and faucets. Isn't true. And are you planning on disclosing that there's no septic tank? Which means any day now, the garden could be flooded with, with shit. We all have the stories that get us through the night that have been told to us and that we've continued to tell 
to ourselves and to others that make us feel like we have something to believe in when we don't have a lot else. What's your deal, man? Don't have a deal. I think that, you know, in San Francisco these days, especially now, we need those stories more than ever. Because as the city becomes increasingly unfamiliar and we we lose left and right the people and the places that, that sort of made us love San Francisco and that we're proudest of, you want to tell yourself these stories of, of what it means to be there and why it's worth being there, why it's worth fighting for it. Because you're constantly coming up against all these reasons why you shouldn't stay there and why the city that you love doesn't love you back. Yes, you are! James Fells built this house in 1946. James Fells! And so I think stories become incredibly important, especially those that give us, you know, pride. Architect Gil Cooley, some shit. Your guy fails, lost in the 90s. See right there. Look, man, if you need a week to find somewhere else, then take it. But don't go pulling some squatter's right shit out. It's always interesting what lines people circle from the movie, you know. There's some that you expect, you know, them to, that, that maybe summarize a feeling. One that I hear from a lot of people, especially San Franciscans, there's a line from this scene where he says, at least I'm from here. I think it speaks a bit to what I was saying earlier about, you know, his willingness to throw Jimmy under the bus and also just that he, he's sort of both using his native card, playing it there while being a traitor. <laughs> This scene is, I think, just another, you know, place where you really see what's so special about Adam. It feels to me, again, like old Hollywood, you know? It almost feels like a stage, you know? And I, I love that feeling, that artifice sometimes, you know? Particularly, you know, in parts of this movie that are about nostalgia and, and, and longing, you know, for something and the ways that a home can like live in your imagination is huge, epic, grand place. I think Adam really understood how to render that in a way that felt magical. And, you know, yet I think that like a part of the movie and a part of what we really want to do is to contrast that sort of artifice with realism of, of Jimmy, you know, not just that it's pulling from his life, but just in the way also that Jimmy as a person communicates as a sort of quiet man of, of few words, but a very honest one. I'm the last one left. 
We are my house. I can't go back there, bro. I think that feeling of not being able to go back, it's something that became more and more important as we got deeper into the edit. Sometimes you write lines and you don't realize, I think entirely even what you're saying yet. They feel right, but you don't, you don't fully process what it is about them that, that works you know, so well, or I guess sometimes it doesn't work well. But in this case, that line of, you know, I can't go back when Jimmy says that, with you, bro. That kind of. You always been with me. That developed a deeper and deeper resonance with me as we spent more time editing the movie and got further and further into the edit. Because I think it's, it's true. Once you've built this place, you know, and you've seen what that feels like to have a home again, and you've reconnected to that feeling. Shit, you're writing? The idea of going back to something else, even if it I think I is a place that you can still exist in with your best friend. I'd like to put it on next week. That's all right. It's not something that you can stomach. Hell yeah, get it, bro. Hey, hey, yeah. If you're going, my parents are old San Francisco lefties and. They always felt that the Scott McKenzie song was, was corny. And in fact, it had been written by John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas as a sort of a marketing material to assuage the locals' anxieties um, over the mass waves of kids who were going to descend on, on Monterey for the festival for Monterey Pop. And so... I think it had for a lot of people in that era a sort of a corniness or like a, a sort of faux hippie quality to it. But over time, you know, by the time I was growing up, that had sort of aged into a warm nostalgia for a period in San Francisco that I think a lot of people have romantic ideas about in the 60s. And yet at the same time, the city had become, I think, uh, a darker place and a harder place to exist as an artist. And so, you know, we thought a lot about how do we take these songs from San Francisco's glory days and, uh, and give them a new edge. And Mike Marshall, who's someone for the People from the Bay Area, we know him as one of the great voices of the Bay. He sang I Got Five on it, uh, and rumors. Thinking about him singing this song, these foghorn-like tubas, spoke to the new city as it exists now. That was good. Thank you, sir. What else you got? And then Mike. I got five. Oh, yeah. your oh, I'm sorry. No, keep going. <laughs> Mike just on the spot broke into I Got Five on it, which was great. One of the more fun unintended moments, actually. 
I think there's a crowd of people on hate who are gathered at that point because he'd been singing like 10 minutes at that point and his voice just bounces off those walls you know he's like such a big beautiful booming voice so when he's saying i got five on it everyone just started cracking up He just like a white boy. Oh, it's for your little show, huh? <laughs> After meeting James Sr. in this SRO, which I think is not a place that he ever thought he would be and, and wants to be. We wanted to see him dressed up, coming back to the house, almost like he's going to church in this special space. But of course, you know, after years of being away, and I think being in a harder part of his life, it's hard to shed that. I don't care about the chair, son. <laughs> but be easy with it. Thank you. But the way that he took in this space, you know, it's yeah. like this moment here at the organ. Oh. And I think you get a glimpse into the man that he was before they lost the house. Shots like this one, Adam and I talked a lot about where we wanted Jimmy to feel like he was a part of this house. And as he spent more and more time there, that he became a part of the property. Especially leading up to this very, I think, difficult confrontation with what that means in this scene. This scene was a hard one. This was a hard, hard scene. We shot the entire thing in one day, including the audience reactions. And the only way we were able to do that was because of Jonathan. I mean, he kind of blew us all away with his performance here. Not just, of course, you know, what you see, but the stamina that's required, I think, to do this all day long and keep revisiting this very emotional, visceral place again and again. It speaks to like his unique talent. But like I can't have soft fingers hanging around me. That wince was uh, 
a great uh, detail that he picked up from Antoine, who really does that wince in real life. And so that reaction that we got of Antoine in the audience, like uh, wincing back, that was candid. He didn't, he didn't know we were filming him. I think he was surprised to see <laughs> Mont channel that, that little detail about him. They gonna call you a bitch at your funeral. I ain't no bitch. I ain't no bitch. I'm a man. They hit me. We spent years workshopping this scene. Um, it was one of the, you know, those scenes that changed so much over the course of development. Uh, constantly rewriting it, bringing in friends to help us workshop it. We brought in a friend, Rodney Earl Jackson, who's a Fillmore native and a theater actor, to help us workshop this and figure out just exactly what we wanted to say before we had an actor casted. And the truth is I'm not a theater guy. I actually don't know very much about theater at all. But one of our first collaborators, Emma Nichols, uh, had spent quite a bit of her life in theater as a theater director. She's from the East Bay. And so she brought a wealth of knowledge to this at, at first. And then, uh, our group of collaborators who, who all came together to make this film spent the years following, developing it further and, and trying to think about, you know, what Mott, who spent this entire film watching and observing people, would want to channel in his big moment where he's finally asking others to listen to him. These three singers are three singers that we've seen throughout the film. Opera singer Tim Blevins, Mike Marshall, and the other gentleman who actually is singing uh, Jefferson Airplane when they descend the steps um, into Forest Hill Station. We didn't using that music. Um, we went with uh, Emile's music instead there, but these are three musicians who are performing on the streets of San Francisco just to get by. More than a, a, a post could reflect or a play could capture. Andy Roy actually had a bigger role in the film, but it was a difficult choice. We had to cut it out. He was wonderful. It just, the scene itself didn't further the plot in a way that quite worked. So this was sort of his return after an earlier scene, which was that he threw a, uh, a dead pigeon at Jimmy. A bummer to have to lose that because Andy was great. You know, he used to come and walk my niece home from school when she first moved up here. He was a little gentleman or whatnot. There are different feelings, you know, that we talked about wanting to channel here. In some ways, feels like I think a funeral in this attic. Other ways like church and, you know, a celebration of life. And I think. No. And how about you, young man? Jonathan's performance here. Man. I don't know. One of the, one of the other sort of remarkable things about it is we asked these established veteran actors like Tashina and Mike Epps and Danny Glover to essentially sit 
can watch all day long. It speaks to, I think, the camaraderie on this movie and, and the humility, you know, that they had, that they did that. And most of all, it speaks to Jonathan. He was so captivating that none of them even asked to leave. They were all really respectful. And that's a part of how I think it's the only way movies like this work. Because we didn't have time to like shoot people out. It was just such a crazy day trying to capture all this footage and make sure that we really honored what Jonathan was so bravely putting out there and going again and again to this place and this very difficult taxing place emotionally and physically. We had to schedule the day a certain way that required every all these actors to remain seated throughout the performance. And I think it was Jonathan's just just how captivating he was to watch that kept them there. What would have happened if Kofi could have showed himself? All forms of himself. Jonathan is a very literary actor. He He's like a dream to work with as someone involved in the writing because he really cherishes the words and he gives them such deep thought. It makes you feel like it's, it's an honor. I remember one point as we got closer and closer to shooting, I wanted to change a few lines here and he pushed back and, and wouldn't let me change them because he felt so strongly about them. Let us all really look at Jimmy Fails the Fourth. Self-taught historian. Carpenter. Gentle, loving man. A true survivor. Jimmy, how many places have you lived? And if they kicked you out tomorrow, you would still be all those things. You exist beyond the... These walls, you, you extend beyond your, your, your forefathers. You're, you're not this house. This was an emotional day, to say the least. You're not this ceiling. It's Brad, time what are you know. doing? What are you and doing? It's time. It's time you know. I don't need to you know. I don't need to know. Let's stop. Let's stop. Jimmy, you, you, Jimmy stop. You, don't, stop. you don't need. Please stop. Months. Your grandpa didn't build this house. For a long time in the script, it had been written that Jimmy did think, even at this point that his grandfather built it, that he still believed that, that that lie had been told to him and that he had fully believed that as being true and that this moment was supposed to be this shocking realization. And as we got closer and closer to filming, Jonathan one day said to me, you know, I think Jimmy always knew. <laughs> and when he said that, it felt like this gauntlet dropped. I mean, it was like everything in the film 
that had been close to clicking, it felt like it finally clicked. I went back and looked through the whole script, afraid of like how much I'd have to change to accommodate that twist that that Jimmy did know his grandfather didn't build it, but that he had held on to the story because it gave him pride and hope. Instead of having been lied to and being surprised. And when I went back and looked at the script, I was surprised to see that it didn't actually change any words on the page. It just changed the way that I think he had to play it as sort of knowing beneath, beneath this feeling of pride and excitement at being in this place that perhaps the story that he'd been, you know, so proudly shouting from the balcony at, at Jello and, and telling DeMont for years was not, uh, was not entirely truthful. But even as I say that, I think that to think of it in terms of true and false feels overly simplistic. That grandpa didn't build this house. I think that story that, that Jimmy tells is about wanting to have a rightful claim to a space. You know, when someone built something that you're related to, it's hard to discount that you have a right to be there and to care about that space and to have held on to that memory of what that felt like, you know, because it was, it's, it's your ancestral claim. And yet I think that having lived there and as a kid and, and having that place be the only home that you know, Jimmy's character has ever known, the only place where his family was all under one roof and outside of his doors, there was a community of people who looked like him and felt like him. I think that is as much of a rightful claim to a space as any. And so I think that Jimmy does have a claim to this space. It's just, and that's true. And he loves it. And I think that's true too. It's such a part of his identity and he has given so much to it. Even when he didn't live inside it, going there and painting it, you know, when your love is like pure in that way, who's to say you don't deserve that place. And yet I think what makes that more and more complicated for Jimmy is he falls deeper and deeper in love with this idea of living in this house is that he also sees it's a dangerous love. You know, I think that's what Mott is trying to communicate to him during the play is that this might start to turn into a dark obsession. What was a pure love, you know, can turn into something darker. And I think he's trying to warn Jimmy against that and I think Jimmy is sort of coming to terms with that in this scene too. And I think that's something that, man, I think a lot of us in San Francisco have felt, you know, in our relationship to that city is we love it so much and want to stay there despite what's happening. But at what point does that become unhealthy for us, you know? I think that's part of what Wanda's trying to say to him here as well is like, 
she's a woman who's who's left that battle and made a, a nice life for herself, you know, with her hot boyfriend, <laughs> tending to her garden, living, you know, away from this sort of dramatic emotional tug of war that occupies so many San Franciscans' hearts. And I think out of love, you know, for her nephew. Is that what you really want? She tries to instill the importance of that here, you know. I think Tashina really. Jimmy always says she felt like his, like, like an auntie or something because she was so, just so loving in spirit. You can make this place yours. I really do. And I think it's a hard thing to realize. It's a hard thing to think about. How could this thing that not only gives me so much joy, but that defines me, how could that be bad for me? San Francisco. And yet sometimes I, you know, I think it can. Fuck San Francisco. This scene is one that gets quoted often. People are talking about the movie because of the line, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. I loved Ghost World growing up. It was one of those movies that I feel like I saw that made me want to make movies. And I, in a lot of ways, really looked up to Thor's character of Enid in that movie. So when I reached out to Thor for this, we sort of joked. <laughs> she said it's almost like Enid, you know, never got off the bus, somehow wound up in San Francisco, and I got a job in tech that she hated. It's, I mean, yeah, I'm here, but do I have to love it? You don't get to hate it unless you love it. Here, she's an outsider in someone else's world. in Jimmy's world. And despite the sort of obnoxiousness of those girls and their response, you know, she might have been someone like a Jimmy where she was from. I think that's sort of what's complicated about what it means to, to be a San Franciscan and, and to be someone that's coming to San Francisco. the great San Franciscans in our city's past are people that weren't born there but came there and, and participated in the city and made it great. People like Harvey Milk. And yet I think there is this anxiety about people who are descending on San Francisco now. 
changing the city, you know, in ways that are unrecognizable to the natives. Like these two guys. We shot this scene the first day as well. This was the end of the first day. And Jimmy and Jonathan, in the weeks leading up to this, had really struck up a real bond as friends. Jimmy was sleeping at Jonathan's place. Jonathan, as an experienced Yale-trained actor who'd been in some bigger films leading up to this, really took Jimmy under his wing and taught him a lot in a way that was similar to, I think, how Adam, our DP, taught me a lot in this movie. But also Jonathan and Adam both came with a humility not being from San Francisco and, and I think really um, treated us lovingly even though we were less experienced than they were. And so this scene, this first day, I, I, uh, I got emotional watching Jimmy because it's a hard thing. You gotta conjure those feelings. Day one, not having been through 25 days of being across from your fellow actor. And I think it's especially hard to do for someone, you know, in Jimmy's position that hadn't acted in a feature film before. And yet he did it. So beautifully. So I was really proud of him. Mont explaining old films to his grandpa it was something that you know we wrote it i wasn't sure if it would exactly come out the way that we hoped for and felt the kind of charm in that but danny and and uh jonathan just gave it so much life I found this painting at a flea market and uh, years ago, and always hoped to use it here. Found it with my friend Zach, who was one of the first people to believe in this movie. And so when he saw that, that scene at Sundance, he, he burst out crying. We talked about here what Jimmy would say. And we actually wrote different letters. They had different feelings, I think, that they each produced. But the others that we wrote just didn't feel like something he would say. That's Jimmy's actual handwriting. And I think it felt the most in his character. This piece that Emil wrote, it almost feels like Roman and gospel all in one. It's Ralph Cato, the opera singer's voice that he, he used so well. And these records Emil played me early on. He developed into this 
this piece that I feel like is, is sort of the movie in, in one musical piece. John has worked here, man, with the, the blue dot furniture. <laughs> you know, I don't feel like I've ever had furniture feel so heartbreaking. She really understood the importance of that and the walls that used to be rose now being bright white. That's my high school teacher, my high school film teacher, who was still really supportive of me after I dropped out. It was nice to see him get a big laugh at Sundance for that. He was there in the audience. He flew out to Sundance to see the premiere. And I think that laugh always feels like a big relief here because it's tense. Oh man, Jimmy on the boat. This was the last shot of the shoot. And uh, Jimmy didn't know how to row. So on par with the rest of the shoot, Jimmy learned how to row in the ocean. <laughs> and that has got to be the littlest boat that's ever been that far beyond the Golden Gate. We were just a mess filming this. We were just so uh, just raw from this, this shoot that I think really brought us you know, to our knees in some ways. And so then to see Jimmy doing that, learning to row in the ocean, uh, it couldn't have ended any other way. <laughs> This movie began as conversations between two friends, eventually felt like it was made by an entire city. And I, you know, all movies are very collaborative, but this movie was especially so. There were so many people that just broke their backs to get this movie made and to pour every single ounce of themselves in here. Their names deserve to be on the screen 10 times as long because without them, there's no way that we pull off this very ambitious movie in San Francisco. San Francisco is known to people that have filmed there as one of the hardest cities in the country to uh, film in. It's not easy. And especially with what we wanted to do, it, it was always going to be something that was very hard. So we're forever indebted to all the people that took this on and made it their baby. I'm Joe Talbot, and thank you for sitting through this commentary.
Thank you. 